We are in John chapter 15 today, and just to kind of catch you up to where we are, we're working through the book of John, uh, uh, and it is the gospel account of Jesus' life, and we've made it all the way up to the night before Jesus was crucified. Uh, so we see in this night that Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's spending these last few hours he has left before he has to go through the crucifixion and then rise again and then return to his father to teach his disciples. And he knows that it is his last night with them before this is to happen. And so he is really making sure to condense all that he'd been teaching them up to this point into these last few moments uh, with his disciples. And it's actually kind of interesting. I was just doing my own uh, personal reading this week through um, the letters of John. He wrote um, much later in his life, obviously. Um, he, he was one of the last gospel writers, last apostles um, alive. And so late in the first century, he's writing these letters. And I was looking and I was reading through First and Second John. I'm like, these words sound incredibly familiar. And I go back to what I was preparing here for the sermon today. And I see that he's using so many of the same phrases and ideas and everything else. And, and, and what I realized was not only here, but all, elsewhere throughout the New Testament, uh, these uh, writers of the letters of the Bible, they're constantly going back to some of Jesus's last teachings. And the reason for that is, one, just the importance and the weight that these are some of his last moments with his disciples, but also because he's using this moment to condense a lot of what he'd been saying before into these few teachings. Uh, so I want to um, read through this verse, uh, through these um, verses here real quick, and I'm going to pray to ask God's guidance as we dive in and see if we can't hear what he has to say through us in his word today. So uh, we are in John chapter 15, and this is what it says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither, uh, unless it, sorry, I lost my spot there, um, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, that, so that you will love one another. All right, let's pray. Father, um, as we dig into these words, some of the last um, teachings that Jesus gives to his apostles, pray that you would show us um, the meaning uh, with clarity, and that you would use it to transform our hearts and our minds and our actions so that we more and more begin to resemble your Son in our own love and words and actions. In your Son's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we dive into this, what we have is this overarching image that Jesus is using. Uh, So he is saying that he is the vine, uh, we are branches off of that vine, and the Father is the vine dresser who comes along and makes sure that this vine is healthy. Now, he's speaking directly to his apostles at this time, but we are included in this teaching because as he's talking about this vine, he's talking about all of his disciples that are going to come through him. Right? And so he uses this image, and he says what is going to happen to these branches is as they abide in the vine and get their life from the vine, they are going to bear fruit. Um, Now, one of the interesting teachings throughout the New Testament that uh, Jesus and the disciples are always talking about is that among the church, they usually use this metaphor of wheat and seeds scattered out. He's saying among the wheat that grows up, there's usually tares. So what the disciples and Jesus are saying in these teachings is that among the church, among the disciples of Jesus throughout all times, there will be those who are followers of Jesus, and there will be those who just look like it and pretend to be followers of Jesus but aren't actually Christians. They say they're tares. And the way you know the difference is because when they finally grow up, the fruit right? So you have people, and you see this in life. You see people who, you, like, man, you grew up as a Christian. Uh, you were in the church. You're doing all these things. I thought you were a Christian, but all of a sudden they just turn away from Christianity and reject it, uh, and they never come back to it. And you're wondering, like, what happened to this person? Uh, and it turns out they're really good at fooling those around him, but their heart and their inside was never actually changed. And the Bible is constantly giving us that warning and preparing us because that is a hard thing, to have someone you love and care for, a friend who's walking with you, and you think walking with you to Jesus, and then they turn away. So it prepares us for that. But then it also warns us. It says, don't fool yourself. It tells you to examine your own life and the fruits of your own life and say, are you a genuine follower? Uh, and the amazing thing is that The Bible doesn't leave us hanging. It says you can actually know for sure if you're a follower of Jesus or not, which is kind of a relief. Like, that would be horrible, your whole life never knowing for sure, do I actually have faith in Jesus or do I not have faith in Jesus? Um, But the Bible says you can be sure. And this is one of these verses that is challenging us to do that. It says the way you can be sure is that a true follower of Jesus, one of my true disciples, will bear fruit. Now, it's interesting because Jesus breaks down this image and he explains, all right, I am the vine. You guys are the branches off that vine. God is the vine dresser who comes and prunes and cuts away, but he doesn't say what the fruit is, right? 
He doesn't directly say in this verse, okay, what is the fruit? Which would seem kind of important. Uh, but the reason he doesn't explain what the fruit is is because all throughout his teaching and all throughout the Bible, it, there is constantly this image of fruit coming up and saying a changed life produces something, and they always call it fruit, whether it's the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of repentance. So the Bible is constantly using this image, and, and at this point, the disciples uh, and those who read the Bible know what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Uh, and there, there's kind of two main lines of thought when he says the fruit. Um, if you abide in Jesus, this is the fruit. And the one main of thought is kind of taking that image of scattering seeds, like, all right, if you bear fruit, that means you will share the gospel and you will uh, help disciple other people to follow Jesus. But then there's the other line of thought that says, okay, so the fruit, it's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those inner characteristics. Um, and the, when you study it, what you realize is, yes, like, it is both. The Bible doesn't actually separate those two things like we, uh, at least I have a tendency to, right? Uh, well, you'll see other parts of the Bible where it says, okay, when you are maturing in your relationship to Jesus, you will start to love your brothers and sisters around you. You'll be more peaceful. You will have less um, divisions within your church, right? So that's sign of that inner maturity, right? The love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness you're showing everyone else. And he says, and that will be a witness to the world around you because they will see what Jesus's love looks like, all right? Uh, so the Bible never lets you separate your inner life from your witness to the world. Uh, and if you think about that, that makes sense because it's not only the words that you say, but the way you live out those words that testifies to who Jesus is, right? And not only that, but if you truly loved someone, right, that first fruit of the Spirit, then you would share to them the words of eternal life. Uh, so there is no separation between this idea of sharing the gospel and evangelizing in your inner life. They all work together, and all of that is this fruit that Jesus is preparing in us. And he's saying if you are abiding in Jesus, if you're a true follower, this is what your life will produce. And if it doesn't produce that, you're not a true follower of Jesus. It doesn't do that to beat people over the head for not being perfect, right? The, the fruit here is not perfection. The fruit here is just this growing maturity, this growing fruit of the Spirit, this growing walking in and helping others to know Jesus as well. Um, and he actually says here in several other points, like, this is to give you hope. If you look back at your life and you examine, am I the same person as before I claimed to know Jesus, or has he changed me? And as you look back at your life and you see how he's changed you to be more loving and kind and gentle and patient, and as you've seen your passion to bring other people closer to Jesus grow as well, you see he is, he has given me the spirit, and he is beginning to change me. But how is this fruit produced? Because uh, we actually dig in here, and what we see is interesting. It says, uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he's telling that so you can examine your life, and you can find hope um, if God has begun to change you. It said, every fruit that does not bear fruit, he takes away, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, this is not the only time in the Bible that this image is used. It's used in 
Proverbs, and that's also used in uh, Hebrews, where the author says that those the Lord loves, he disciplines. And now no discipline and it is pleasurable to the person in its time, but it produces the fruit of eternal righteousness, right? Uh, so that's the thing. When, if you are a follower of Jesus, he says you can know you are a true disciple and follower of Jesus because he disciplined you. And he says that in the same, uh, the same voice that he says, and I tell you this so that you can have joy, which seems mutually exclusive at first, right? Like, yeah, being disciplined by God, that sounds like so much fun, Jesus. What are you talking about here? Uh, and, but what he's saying is this. If you look at your life, right, the commandments that God gives you, the discipline that he gives you, it's producing you into a certain type of person. He's saying who you were before, that's not going to ultimately bring you joy and hope. That's not ultimately going to be who you want to be. Discipline is painful in its time, but the person it is making you makes all of that pain and all of that discipline worth it. Uh, we actually see, and I bring this up a lot, um, in one of Paul's letters, he actually says, these light and momentary troubles are not even worth comparing to the weight of the glory that it is producing in me. And now this is Paul. When he says light and momentary troubles, he means several times he'd been beaten to death, falsely imprisoned, kicked out of cities, chased for his life, right? He's, he only can say light and momentary troubles because he knows that what he is being changed into and what is being produced in him is so incredibly worth it that this is not even worth comparing. These troubles are not even worth comparing. And that's not to make light of the discipline and the troubles and the pain that our life gives us, right, in this fallen world. It is hard. Life is painful. But what God is saying is that he is using all of this to transform you. And the transformation is producing something in you that is so worth it that when, when it is finished, when we're looking back in heaven, we can look back and go, man, that's not even worthy of comparison to what it has gained, to what I have gained in Jesus. Um, but let's look closely at this fruit because um, a lot of times we, t we kind of, as Protestants, we take this gospel message and we know, right, we cannot earn our salvation, we cannot earn our place on the vine, um, but after the gospel message, right, after we have received Jesus and have forgiveness of our sins, we go, okay, now it's up to me to get to sanctify my life. It's up to me to gain closer to Jesus and grow this fruit in my life. But here Jesus, knowing that tendency in us, he corrects us right away. This is what he says. Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you, so you are forgiven. But he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. What he's saying there is like, the gospel isn't just for the unsaved. It's also for us Christians. And what I mean by that is this. We depend on Jesus to transform our hearts and our minds by his sacrifice for our sins so that we can now have the Holy Spirit and we can now be um, reunited in our relationship with God. But we also depend on him to change our hearts and our affections and our desires throughout our life. We can't change ourselves. 
There's things we can do that God graciously allows us to join into this work, right? There, there are things we can do like go to him in prayer, um, but ultimately it is God who changes us. And now uh, for, for those of you who like to have complete control of your lives, that might sound painful at first, right? Like there's nothing you can do to change. Um, but he actually says that to us to give us freedom. Like if you try for any length of time to change your character, to become more patient and more loving and more gentle, you will find very quickly you're not good at it. Like, you can maybe change your outward behavior, but inside you're still going to be just as frustrated and unloving and short-tempered with the people around you. So he's giving you freedom. He said, abide in me, have faith in me, I will begin to change you, right? And then in those moments where being patient and being gentle and being kind to our brothers and sisters around us who are frustrating us, right? When that is hard and difficult, we just step out in faith and we show patience, trusting that God will also begin to transform the inner nature of us. So if you are abiding in Jesus, you will produce fruit. If you are abiding in Jesus, the Father will begin to prune your life and make you look more and more like Jesus does. Um, And how does he do that? What is some of his main methods? He actually says it right here. He says this, um, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away, right? And so if you abide in me, and here it is, and my words abide in you. And then he goes on to say, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's one of those verses, right? If you pray in Jesus' name, whatever you pray for, you'll be given. And we read that and we go, yeah, right. I've, I've made several prayers and God has never given me what I prayed for, right? That, that's kind of one of those, those things that constantly butts up against our faith. You said in your Bible, if I pray in your name, it will happen. Well, it's not happening. We kind of forget what came before that, though. If what? I abide in Jesus and his words abide in you, right? Then you ask whatever you wish for. So it's kind of implying one thing already, that one, you are abiding in and trusting in Jesus for direction and hope and encouragement and strength, but also his word is abiding in you. Everything he teaches, everything um, in the scripture is, is not only something that you know mentally, but has become... You've read it over and over and chewed over and over, and it's become an actual part of you. It's within your inner nature at this point, right? If that is happening, then whatever you ask is whatever God is wanting, right? Which we know is better in the end anyways. Like, God gave us everything we ever wanted. It would end pretty badly for us. But if we were asking in Jesus' name, in other words, we are asking in his will, then whatever we ask, God will give to us, and it will be for our own good. Now, obviously, when we pray, not everything we ask, we get. Um, That's because we haven't yet learned to completely abide in Jesus, and we haven't so entirely ingested his word that is a part of our inner nature yet. Um, But we can work towards that. We can 
continue to go to the scripture and let the spirit open it us to up to us and transform our lives so that it becomes more and more a part of us. And then more and more what we pray for is more and more what along with God's will and his desires for us because God's desires become our desires. What he loves, we begin to love, right? And that way when we actually pray for things, it's less destructive for us. Um, but that does bring up the question, why pray in the first place, right? That's kind of one of the questions. If, if, if God gives us whatever we ask, but only if we pray in his will, why pray in the first place? He already knows we need it. He already has his plan, his will in place. Why pray? It's kind of what we talked about earlier, that while God begins to change us, and it is only him that changes us, we can't do it on our own, like what is our part in that? Why do we still have to do some of the discipline like praying and going to the scripture and stepping out in faith in our actions of love? Why, why do we have to do these things? Um, which actually goes, I think, to the very seed of the gospel. What is so good about the gospel? What is so good about the good news of Jesus? What was broken in the fall? We know that human beings were created to be in perfect relationship with God. But because we disobeyed him, because we sinned, our relationship became broken, right? So what is wrong with the fall? What is broken about sin is that we became separated from God. God is restoring that relationship with him. So yes, could God give us whatever we want without us asking for us? Asking for it? Yeah, he could, but it kind of defeats the purpose. What he's trying to do is restore his relationship with you which involves this communication where we read what he's saying to us in his word and we speak what we are saying to him in our prayers and it opens up this communication and this relationship, right? So we see that God is restoring relationship as we abide in him and his word abides in us. And we see that by this, God is glorified. Because when we pray, as we're abiding in Jesus and as his word is abiding in us, it produces fruit by which Jesus is glorified. Now, it goes on and says this. Um, how do you abide in Jesus' love? And he says, if you obey my commandments. Right? Uh, and what is his commandment? This is the interesting thing. What is his commandment? He actually says it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this takes a little breaking down for a second. At the heart of the scripture, at the part of all of the commandments that have ever been given by God throughout time and history, is this idea of love, right? All of it can summed up is, do, are you loving God, and therefore are you loving God's created beings around you for God's sake, right? That sums up all of these commandments, which changes things, because you can outwardly seem to be obeying God, right? This is why you can have people who appear to be Christian, because outwardly they seem to be doing all that is being commanded and all that's being asked of them, but they aren't doing it because they love God, and they aren't doing it because they love the people around it. They're doing it because whatever reason, they feel they have to, um, there's some gain in it at the moment, 
whatever reason except for love, and so they're missing the heart of it. Outwardly, yes, but inwardly, they haven't gotten what God is trying to do for them. Um, but it leads us to another question, right? What is love? Uh, I encourage you to do this. I, I was looking for videos as I was preparing the sermon on YouTube, just like that question, type it in, what is love? Problem was, I couldn't actually find one where the words were necessarily appropriate for the sermon as they defined love. Um, but everyone has a different opinion on what love is, and usually it's very vague, and they use a lot of big words that don't really mean a whole lot. No one knows what love is. What is love? Um, I, as I was doing that search, I actually found this video by this Orthodox priest. Um, and even though we are Protestants, I think we can learn from a priest this once. Um, so this Orthodox priest was telling this story about this young man who came to him for spiritual advice. Uh, and he, was, he sat down to eat lunch together, and this man pulled out his fish, and he just goes, man, I love fish. The priest looked at him and goes, you do? He's like, yeah, I love fish. He's like, really? You love it so much that you shoved a hook in his mouth, yanked it out of the water, cut it open, cooked it, and you're eating it. You don't love the fish. You love yourself. And the fish brings you pleasure, so you consume it. Now, this priest wasn't a vegan. He didn't care about the fish necessarily, but he wanted to prove a point. A lot of our love, what we call love, is fish love. We don't love other people. We love ourselves. And because that person brings us pleasure in the moment, we consume them. Our relationship then is about us. It is not about that person. But the thing is, God doesn't leave us hanging on what love is. He gives us a definition. Better than that, actually, better than a definition, he gives us an example. He says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The interesting thing, Thing. In this verse, Jesus is saying all these gospel accounts of who Jesus is and how he loved, uh, how he lived, this is his definition of love. Look, how do we love? Well, look to Jesus. How did he love? Right? But he goes on. He says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And you, you are my friends. Now, Jesus at this time, he knew what he was about to do. He knew he literally was about to lay down his life and die for his friends. And looking back, the apostles knew this too. Um, but that's not all he's saying here. What I think we need to remember is at this point, Jesus hadn't yet physically died for them. Not yet. He was going to be, and that's definitely a part of it. But it's more than that because every waking moment of Jesus' ministry— um, his sleeping moments, too, I would imagine, were spent for us. He didn't live for himself. He literally, every moment he lived, every living perfectly without sin was so that he could live in our place, the life that we could never live. He lived an example so that we could look back and learn from him. Every moment of Jesus' life, he laid down his own life, his own desires, so that he could love us, right? That is the love that Jesus is talking about in this moment. See, lo true love that the Bible is talking about is not about the pleasure that you get from another person. It is about loving them for who they are, right? If he had truly loved the fish, he would have tossed it 
he would have left it right alone in the river that he got it from, right? He just let it keep swimming because that was best for it. And we see this theme echoed throughout scriptures. At one point, it even says, consider others more important than yourself. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. This is a high thing for Christians. And this verse that started off as supposedly giving us hope, but if this is the standard for love, and if love is the fruit of whether I'm truly a Christian or not, it starts to get a little worrying at this point, right? Like, how can I possibly love like that? And on one hand, the answer is like, well, in this life, you can't. Not completely, not yet. But God is working us more and more and more so that we begin to love more and more and more like he loved. It might not be that yet, but it is the finished product that he is working for. And so are you moving in that direction? Are you loving people more and more for their sake and not for your own? I encourage you, this week, every time you get done uh, with your day before you go sleep, think back over your day. Think, how have I loved the people around me? Did I actually love them? Did I do it for their own sake and not for my own sake, right? Am I actually loving people? Um, but thankfully, that's not all the Bible gives us on this idea of love. Uh, we look actually in one of the letters by the same apostle, 1 John. Uh, what we see is that the only reason we can love is because Jesus first loved us. And you think about that. What it is saying is that human beings intrinsically have this need to be loved. It's part of who we are. It's not a bad thing. I mean, look at creation. Back before sin even entered the world, when it was just Adam, God looked at him and he goes, this is not good. Well, this is before sin. What was not good? It's not good for Adam to be alone. Intrinsic to being a human being, how God made us, is this need for our relationships with others, to be loved by others. That's not bad. Um, but in a fallen world, you can never be loved perfectly by another fallen human being. And if you aren't loved perfectly, you don't have the freedom to love other people um, without expecting love in return, right? Because you have that need. If you try to love someone else uh, and they're not actually loving you in return and they're your only source of love, you're going to feel that need. You're going to feel... Uh, the shortness uh, of that need that we all have. But what it is saying here is that Jesus became a human being so that he could love each of us perfectly. And because we have one person, one human being, who loves us completely and entirely, all of our flaws and all of our imperfections, because we can always turn to him, now we have freedom to love other people even when they don't love us in return. Now all these verses about if someone strikes you in the cheek, turn them the other cheek. They're not just about willpower and holding back. They're about you have freedom to do that because you are so completely accepted and loved by someone else that their rejection and their unlovingness towards you doesn't matter. That is what the Bible is talking about when the fruit of a Christian life. Because we are so connected with Jesus and find our life and our love and our source from him, we now have freedom to, of, to make this fruit of love and righteousness and patience with other people around us and to invite them to also attach themselves to the vine. 
That is what Jesus is getting at here, and that is the part of the amazingness of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just come in to love us perfectly. By his loving us perfectly, he gives us the freedom to also love other people around us, and so begin to remake us in how we were meant to be before the fall, where we had those relationships that were untainted by sin and hatred around us. So what I want us to do throughout this week is I want you to chew on just that thought. Because Jesus loves me completely, how does that free me up to love those around me? Think about that in every interaction. Every interaction when you get frustrated and angry at someone around you, when they actually sin against you, think, I have the freedom to forgive them because I have been forgiven. I have the freedom to love them even though they're not loving me back because I am loved by someone else. How will that begin to transform the lives around us? Not just our own lives, but how will that paint the picture of who Jesus is and begin to invite people into the gospel, into this true vine. So I'm going to leave us with that thought, and I'm going to pray um, and as we move into singing and closing out the worship service. So, Father, I just want to thank you for the incredible gift of your son to us, that he came and he died, and he took the punishment for our sins so that we didn't have to. And that he came and he loves us so entirely that it frees us up to love others. Thank you for restoring our humanity, our true nature, our true design through your son. Help us to hold on to that truth and let it work into us as we dig into your scripture, that your word begins to sink in and transform who we are. In your name I pray, amen.